So welcome everybody to today's episode of the Independent Teacher Podcast. And I'm really pleased that I'm talking today to Dr. Matthew Courtney. And Matthew, you are based in the USA. Can you tell our listeners exactly where you are today? Yeah, I am based out of Kentucky, um, which is a state kind of in the middle of the country. Today, it's very cold here in Kentucky. Um, We're in the start of winter. Um, Tomorrow, it is going to be negative two degrees Fahrenheit, which I think is negative 18 or 19 degrees Celsius. So uh, very cold. (laughs) Very, very cold. I don't think I'd survive. So uh, (laughs) talk, talk to our listeners about you, Matthew, and about your career to date. Yeah, so I started my career out as an elementary music teacher, um, teaching general music and choir, kindergarten through fifth grade, a job that I absolutely adored doing um, and found to be very rewarding. Um, But throughout that time in my life, uh, I found myself often really frustrated by the systems that we were working through and sort of the slow pace of change and the unintentionality of all of it. It it always felt to me that change was um, very driven by the whims of the day and not by thoughtful evidence-based decision-making. And so eventually I made my way out of the classroom and into the nonprofit sector um, where I did some work on um, evidence development and research use among classroom teachers, and then made my way into policymaking roles where I continue that work, um, doing really thinking about how can we expand evidence use and research access for teachers, and then um, now do a lot of consulting and and teaching to help teachers learn how to do that kind of work better. Um, I believe in intentional continuous improvement, and research and data use is the key to that. Mm -hmm. And Because we've got quite a number of our listeners who are based in Europe Mm. and you're in the United States, could you very briefly tell us a little bit about the school system in the United States? And and I think we're quite interested in learning about how pupils are assessed and how teachers are held, I hate to say it, but held accountable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, the United States is a little different than many other places in the world in that every locality has control over their own school system. And so um, no two school systems look exactly alike in the United States. No two states have systems that look exactly alike either. Um, And so it makes for a really um, interesting space where innovation can happen because there's lots of flexibility. Um, It also makes for a space where improvement is hard because improvements Um, must be driven at that local and even at that classroom level. And so you have to change lots of hearts and minds in order to change practice um, within the field. Um, Most of the time, um, we're set up in a three-school system. So we have elementary schools, kindergarten through fifth grade, what we call a middle school, or sometimes called a junior high, which is sixth through eighth grade, and then high school, um, which is um, ninth through twelfth grade. When we think about assessment uh, and accountability, we do have a national law. The current version of it is called the Every Student Succeeds Act that was passed in 2015. And that requires every state to have um, what we call a school report card, which is a public facing portal where we report on a wide variety of metrics for students, um, things like um, assessment scores, but also um, achievement outside of the school system, um, success for our graduates, um, attendance, behavior, those sorts of things. So um, there's a big movement in the United States to make education a little more transparent. Mm -hmm. 
And is there a lot of testing? There is a lot of testing. Um, and testing is something that we talk a lot about in our schools. Um, federally, um, there's just a handful of tests that are required to be given um, at certain benchmarks throughout um, throughout a student's schooling career. Um, but then there's also a lot of benchmark testing and a lot of um, sort of quarterly assessments that local districts choose to give on their own. Um, and so, so educators in America are um, really overflowing with data. And this is obviously where, where your role really fits in, doesn't it? And your own interest. Now we'll come back a little bit later on when we get to the end of the show, maybe to talk about why you became a, a teacher. But you mentioned there about data. Can you describe an, an evidence-based um, research? Can you describe some of the work that you're currently engaged in to try and support teachers and school leaders as well? Yeah, so I, what I found um, in my career as a teacher and also um, in some policy and leadership roles that I've held is that there really is just a mountain of data available to educators, but not a lot of time and a lot of um, systems to make that data really useful. And so I, while I think we probably do too much standardized testing, I think there is a role for standardized testing within our system. Um, but really that role only matters if we are using that data, if we're pulling it out of systems, we're doing the analysis, we're having those conversations. And so what my work focuses on now primarily is helping educators think about, okay, I've got all of this data, which pieces of this data is really meaningful to me? And how can I make decisions using this data? How can I build systems that are replicable, that make data analysis a little faster, a little easier, a little more routine? How can I find anomalies in my data and use those anomalies to drive decision making? Um, so that's really where the bulk of my work is now. Um, it's really about the how. And you've got this book that's just come out, haven't you, called Adventures in Action Research. Yeah, I love that because I think, if you, <laughs> you know, if you would talk to most of my colleagues who uh, were teachers and you mentioned data, they'd go, oh, oh, no, oh, no. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and if you were in a training session, they'd probably switch off. So I think this idea about adventures in data is is a real catch and it will really bring people um, on board. So just just tell us about that. And, and, and also I wanted to focus on how do you change the mindset of teachers who just see data as something that, you know, they don't want to engage with? because they don't have the yeah. time, as you say, and some of them don't understand it either. And it's then, and, and sometimes the data could be, can be used as a way to s criticize them, I suppose, if the students aren't making progress. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those are all excellent points. Um, and you're exactly right. When I do workshops and speaking engagements and what have you, it, I get a lot of kind of cringy and um, eye rolls and like, oh, here we go again. Here's here's some more stuff on data. Um, and there is a resistance to using data and research. Um, and my focus is all about um I'm someone who believes that research and data analysis is really fun um, and really can be fun. It's like solving a crossword puzzle or a Sudoku puzzle where, you know, we're really just trying to figure out what's going on and we're using all of these pieces to paint a brilliant picture. And so um, that's part of why my book is called Adventures in Action Research, because I want the action research process to be something that is fun and engaging, that feels like an adventure. Action research is a continuous improvement paradigm where classroom teachers can identify their own problems of practice and then apply research methodologies to 
test their own solutions and see what works and what doesn't work. And what I find is that when I can really engage teachers in that work, um, sometimes they're forced to be engaged in the work and sometimes they choose to be engaged in the work. But once I engage them, they see that it really is very empowering to be able to say, here's a problem that I have in my classroom. Here's a, a way I think I can solve it. Did it actually work? Um, and if we can figure out how to capture that and share that across the field, then we can be a more evidence-based profession and, and make more intentional decisions along the way. I think that sounds sounds great. I'd come back to time. Do you ever get the teacher saying, oh, I really want to do this, but when am I going to find the time? Because I'm in the classroom with the students. I've got a curriculum to follow. I've got assessments to do. I've got my own um, professional development to consider. H how, do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, time is a certainly a barrier, a well-documented barrier and documented in education systems across the globe, really. Um, no educator really has enough time to do all the things that any system is asking them to do, which um, is a huge systemic problem for us to tackle as a field. Um, but one of the ways I like to think about data analysis, um, and in my book, Exploratory Data Analysis in the Classroom, I talk a lot about how we can boil data analysis for decision-making down into a handful of essential skills. And if I can learn this handful of essential skills, I think there's maybe 12 um, in that book, I can apply those skills to any data that I have. Part of the reason data takes so much time is because our assessments and our, our data systems live in different places. They have different buttons and different routes and different reports. And so if you're going to give assessment A, then you have to sit in a three-hour training on how to give the assessment, how to access the report, how to read the report. And then you give uh, maybe behavior management system B, and then you have reporting and training about that. And that takes so much time when really, if you can export those into a spreadsheet and you can learn a handful of essential spreadsheet skills, you can answer analyze any data set in front of you. And that becomes then a replicable process. It becomes an automated process. So you can do the work a little bit faster. And you talked there about some of your principles of action research. Could you possibly give us an introduction about how you would hook um, some of those teachers into um, action research? Yeah, I think the best way to engage in action research is through stories. Um, so let me tell you a story of a teacher who um, I've recently worked with who I think used this method um, with remarkable success. I have a, a good friend who's teaching first grade, and um, she had a first grader come to her who um, was not fully potty trained. And so this was causing a lot of disruption in her classroom. Um, frequent extra trips to the bathroom, frequent disruptions to the student learning of other students around her, some classroom management challenges for her as well. And so she went to the parents and they had a conversation. Um, usually when a child who's six, seven, eight is not fully potty trained, we go to the doctor. And so she helped recommend that they do that. They took the child to the doctor. Nothing was physiologically wrong. So she said, okay, then we know that this is an emotional behavioral concern. So she went to the research literature and she said, what can I learn about um, potty training at this age and why kids are or are not potty trained by this, this age? She found some interventions. She picked one. She tested it in her classroom. She collected data over a period of time. And ultimately, um, in the course of about three months, she potty trained that child. 
she changed her classroom management. She changed her classroom environment through that project. And she changed the life of that child and their family forever. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's a really powerful example of action research really in action um, because she had this problem. She solved it on her own. It didn't take any extra resources. It took a little bit extra time. Um, but think about all the time she bought back by doing that. Over the course of that three months, it was a little extra legwork, but a school year is nine months. And so for the next six months, think about how much classroom management, how many fewer disruptions she had. Um, and so she bought back a lot of time through that little extra effort. And can you tell us any other stories, perhaps based on um, high school or um, middle school, I think? That sure, you said, that yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, I recently worked with a high school teacher who um, was having trouble with um, her students didn't want to participate in a certain kind of computer-based intervention that she was trying to run. And um, it was one of those uh, reading interventions where it kind of sets your level and, and then helps to kind of push kids up a level through um, sort of tiered and scaffolded reading. But her kids didn't really want to do it. Um, and But she knew that it had been successful because she had used it in the prior year and her her kids this year didn't like it, but her kids last year loved it. And so she wanted to pilot um, a homegrown um, incentive system to try to encourage her kids to engage in that. And so what she did, I thought this was brilliant. Um, she used uh, quasi-experimental study design. So she had four sections of the class, two sections of the class received an intervention, two sections of the class did not receive an intervention. Over a period of eight weeks, she um, manage this intervention system that she had designed at the end. I sat with her, we looked at all of her data and her intervention system was remarkably successful. Um, and the kids who were receiving these incentives were using the system more. So she was, she knew then she made an informed decision to allow that intervention that um, system to go across all of her sections of her class. Here's the other thing that she did is she built layers into that. And in research, we call that stratification. Um, so she stratified her incentive program and she analyzed it by male students versus female students. Um, and she had some, you could get a behavior or, or a, a homework pass, you could get a choose your own seat pass, you could get all these different incentives. And so she tracked each incentive individually. And so she really learned that homework incentives and choose your own seat incentives were the best for her class. So she got rid of all the other incentives. She focused on those two. She applied them across all four. So that was a lot of work up front. But it boosted her kids' achievement because now all four sections of her class are logging into that system. They're using that intervention. She's able to then use that instructional time to push them in a new direction. And I think the thing to me that's most amazing about her project is that she started with um, five or six different incentives and through the data whittled it down and said, okay, here's really the two that matter. These are the two that my kids are using the most and responding to the most. And so even that saves her time down the road because now she doesn't have to track all these different incentives just to um, so it really made her um, classroom much more streamlined and it was a really intentional, thoughtful decision. So that's work in the classroom. What about work with school leaders? Have you got any stories to tell there? Yeah. So um, with school leaders, um, we're looking really at system changes, right? And so where a teacher, I might say, let's identify a problem of practice that's 
impacting your classroom right now at a system level, I might say something like, you know, let's look at outcomes of yours uh, from your school, from your institution that you're not really happy with. And let's start with more of an outcome um, focused mindset because you're trying to really drive that institution in a certain direction. So I have a really good story about this using the exploratory data analysis technique um, from during COVID. I was working with a school um, that had a a large population of non-English speakers. Um, Most of them were immigrants from Latin America. And when we transitioned during COVID in the United States, we transitioned to a virtual schooling system very rapidly, um, like over the course of a weekend. And so they transitioned to this online learning management system. They're tracking their learning and they're seeing that um, this group, this population of youth was not logging into the system. And so they weren't getting any instruction. And so the school said, we think it's a language barrier. And they had got some money and they were going to hire an interpreter. They were going to do home visits um, during a time when home visits were much more dangerous and concerning, but they were going to do these home visits, use this interpreter and spend all this money in that direction. I said, okay, well, hold on. Let's look at your data and let's make sure that's what we think that it is. So we get into the data and what we find is that it wasn't a population problem. It was just a subset of their larger English learner population. And that we also had some other non-English learners who were consistently not moving on. So we introduced um, a street address as a data point. Most of us don't think to use street address as a data point, um, but it's a great one. And what we found is that the kids who were not logging in all lived in the same little part of town. And what they actually had was an internet access barrier. And so they were able to take that money instead of instead of hiring an interpreter and going that route, they were able to take that money. They were able to purchase um, some mobile hotspot devices and get access to all of those kids. So they spent their money better and they were able to reach more kids because they would have missed the non-English learners who were not logging in. And then ultimately, when that interpreter went into that neighborhood, they probably would have found it's actually an internet access issue and they would have had to spend that money again anyway. Um, So it saved them time and money in the long run. What I want you to do is to come back now just to, to, to bring the conversation back to you. Um, can you tell us uh, about the repository and all your courses and workshops? Because I'm sure that there will be people listening to this who will want to, to make contact with you and to find out to find out more. Yeah. So thanks for that question. The repository is a t- space on my website where I put um, tools and resources and online courses um, that can help you build the skills on your own. Um, we know that many educators are on their own with professional learning and they have to seek those skills um, through their with their own um, finances and their own time. And so uh, my hope is to be able to use the repository as a space to place professional learning um, activities and resources so that you can grow on your own. The most popular area of the repository are my six auto analysis tools. And so I have six tools where you can upload a spreadsheet and it will automatically analyze it for you. Um, So I have one that does um, student disaggregation. So if you have a column with student identifiers, maybe those are race, ethnicity, maybe those are gender, maybe they're course sections and a spreadsheet with outcomes, it will break that apart for you and do all the analysis. Um, I have a correlation matrix generator that will just take all your data and make this really pretty visualization. Um, My most popular tool by far is my single case design tool, which is used by a lot of special education teachers and teachers working um, on behavior modification, because what it allows you to do is take 
data over time. So we take baseline data, then we introduce an intervention, we take some more data, then we take the intervention away and see kind of what happens. You can upload that, it makes all the graphs, it does all the analysis for you. Um, so my hope is that those tools will be a useful entry level for teachers uh, and that it will really save a lot of time because it does a lot of the work for you. And is this all free or is there a subscription in order to access it? Yeah, right now they're all free. Um, I'm committed to keeping especially those six tools free forever. Um, I will be launching in 2023 some um, premium e-courses um, with videos and activities that you can go along to go a little further into your learning. Um, but those sort of essential tools, I also have a, a YouTube channel and those are linked in the repository with different walkthroughs and tutorials. Those will remain free forever. And in terms of um, the people who can make use of this, obviously, uh, it's teachers in the United States. Are you looking to take it out to other parts of the world? Because with this podcast, we've got listeners here in Australia, we've got listeners in Europe, we've got listeners in Asia, obviously, the majority in, in the UK. But is this something that you know transcends borders? Yes, it absolutely is. Um, the repository right now has users from all over the world. Um, I recently spoke to a rising scholar in Australia who is using the autoanalysis tools to help um, complete her dissertation. Um, I've spoken with some teachers in um, Colombia and Latin America who are using those tools as well. Um, and there are some folks even in the UK already who are logging into the repository and using those tools and resources. So all of those are available to anyone with access to the internet. Now, as we come to the end, what I want to do is I, I want to take you back and forwards in time. So first of all, taking you back, okay. can you remember what actually motivated you to become a teacher? I mean, was there someone at school who really inspired you? Was there a subject? Obviously, you were a music teacher. But why did you go down um, the route of becoming a teacher? Yeah, I remember very vividly, actually. Um, I didn't plan to become a teacher. When I went to university, my plan was to become a musicologist. And I wanted to study music and sit in dusty libraries and look over old manuscripts and, and write papers about music and the, its development over time. And one of my advisors at university said, well, you should. why don't we go ahead and get you a teaching certificate too while we're at it? Um, and I think she really knew all along that I was supposed to be a teacher. And so she really pushed me in that direction. And I went to do my student teaching, uh, my, my pre-service internship. And I went into a school and on the very first day, um, I'm sitting on the floor. My teacher who I'm observing is doing a lesson. I'm on the floor with a student and a student who, um, I now call Rebecca to protect her anonymity came and plopped down in my lap. And I kind of looked at my cooperating teacher and she she kind of had big eyes and she said, let her stay there. Um, and after that class, she said, she, she pulled me aside and she said, you know, Rebecca is a student who doesn't engage with teachers, um, but for some reason she engaged with you today. So let's see how that happens. And over the course of a semester, Rebecca became my best friend and Rebecca really changed the course of my life because I had had the education courses and I had done my observation hours and all of that. Um, but it was through working with her intensely one-on-one -on -one over the course of a semester that I realized the power that education and educators have to really change the world um, and to change the world one human being at a time. And so that really changed my trajectory. A lovely story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, 
traveling forwards in time, using your imagination, I want you to imagine that you're celebrating your 65th birthday. I know that's a very long way away. <laughs> um, and presumably, it's also your retirement party as well. Uh-huh. So you've got all your colleagues who you've invited to, to your party. Um, what would you say to them? And would you have any sort of golden nuggets of advice for them? Hmm. What would I say to them? Well, I think my message would be keep improving. I'm a continuous improvement guy. And I believe that um, nothing is ever going to be good enough for our future and for our youth. And so always going back to that continuous improvement mindset, maybe we have 100% kids proficient at at reading. Well, to me, then that says it's time to move the proficiency mark. Let's push further. Let's change what that means. Um, never settling. Nothing is ever good enough. We can always push and improve and grow. And that is, I believe, how you create a world-class education system and a better society for the future is by never accepting what you have and always pushing for better, better outcomes, better experiences, um, better lives. Excellent. And very last question. Where do you think you'll be when you're 65? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, when I'm 65, I think I will still be here in beautiful Kentucky, um, watching the snow fall out my window like I will be tomorrow. <laughs> oh, Matthew, what a lovely way to end the, the conversation. <laughs> Can I say, uh, it's been lovely chatting to you. Uh, it's been a huge privilege and I'm sure that our listeners will be logging into that website of yours and trying to find out more and maybe making contact with you. But it's been absolutely brilliant and, and thank you for joining us. Um, so from a, uh, a rather mild um, five degrees C Birmingham in the UK, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You have been listening to the Independent Teacher Podcast. If you like listening to this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.